Welcome to Narratology. Each episode will offer unique insights and perspectives from people countering the narrative. We seek to tell stories that bring a critical lens to the events shaping our present and our past. We will bring activists, artists, influencers, advocates, and innovators to you and together engage in powerful discussions. I'm your host, Charles Stevens. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Narratology. I'm your host, Charles Stevens. Today, it is my great pleasure to chat with Al Cunningham. As many of you know, one of my great passions is public memory and what has been called the Black Gay Renaissance. The artistic movement led by such figures as Essex Hemphill and Marlon Riggs and Joseph Bean and so many others. What brought me and Al together was through lineage and legacy. And I want to just absolutely thank Al again just for joining us. And with that, why don't we just jump in? So Al, how are you today? Excellent and improving, Charles. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Could you tell our listeners about yourself? Uh-oh. Okay. Well, here we go. Um, <laughs> I was born and raised in Chicago on the South Side, an area known as Bronzeville. And I had a really idyllic childhood is the best thing I can say. I mean, looking back, I guess from this vantage point, it seems like it was kind of a golden era because everything was happening right there in my little you know world that I could walk to. And for some reason, I don't remember my parents keeping a lot of tabs on me. So I sort of got to do what I wanted to do. And I had so many things. That's sort of when my life began to sort of take on what I now think of as a charmed effect because I would just walk up on things that would really, like one day I walked up on Muhammad Ali sitting in a Rolls Royce at a, a women's health clinic. I mean, he was apparently waiting for somebody to come out. It was you know, known as a place where women went to get pregnancy exams or whatever. But I mean, there was nobody else around. And he was already the heavyweight champion of the world. You know, just the opportunity to go up and speak to him, you know, just off the cuff as I was going from my friend's house home was just an amazing kind of a, an experience, but not really in those times because everybody, that's kind of the upside of segregation. You know, you couldn't be out, you weren't going to be out in the suburbs. You weren't going to be, you know, living someplace where, you know, only well-to-do white people for the most part lived. You were pretty much in that community. So I had a great time growing up and I had a, a lot of exposure to the, the world around me. And I had a lot of great adults who really encouraged me, including my parents and my paternal grandmother, who, who really, you know, used her at that point, I guess, 30 years of teaching experience to, you know, to make my growing up really special. And it's like, Alex Haley says grandparents so often can sprinkle stardust in a child's life. And that was kind of what my grandmother did for me. And that led me to wanting to write. And so when I was 11, I got a job with the local weekly newspaper. I wanted to write news, but instead I ended up having, you know, I didn't have to, but this is what I pitched. I pitched a kids advice column, you know, Ann Landers was real big back then and stuff. So that just seemed like a cute shtick, except that, of course, nobody ever wrote me except my own mother. How can I get my son to take out the garbage or whatever? 
but it was my first experience and it kind of gave me a taste of what that was about. And that just sort of led me through college and beyond into a career as a writer. Awesome. You talked about having this very charmed life where you've had an opportunity to cross paths with many very notable people. And part of what brought us together was Reggie Williams. And we've discussed the work that that you're doing to honor him. Could you tell our listeners about Reggie Williams and your relationship to him? Well, yes, that's another one that I could probably spend the rest of of our time together talking about, but I can't really put my finger on when exactly I met Reggie. But in 1987, I was a public information officer for the District of Columbia Commission on the Arts and Humanities. And at a district-wide, you know, citywide public information officers meeting, there was a request from the National AIDS Network for a public information officer, potentially, or officers to be loaned to the National AIDS Network to do some writing. And I ultimately was one of those people and became a minority affairs writer for the National AIDS Network. And, you know, it was kind of a clearinghouse for all of the various things going on around AIDS at, at that point in time. And the issues of people of color were just beginning to come into the picture. And I'm sure it was through that that I met Reggie, who was at that point someone who was a part of a group known as the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention, which was a project of the National Association of Black and White Men Together, which is a national organization with chapters around the country. And back then, I think it had somewhere around 30 chapters in virtually every major city in the country. And in response to, you know, their own members' issues around AIDS, they had started this task force of volunteers from the various chapters to see, you know, what could they do. And Reggie had kind of naturally gravitated toward the fore of it because he, in his professional life, was a radiology technician. He gave people x-rays at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in West Hollywood. And so he had seen these men, you know, coming in, unable to breathe, uh, you know, pneumocystis pneumonia. And so he realized, you know, early on, you know, what what the situation was. And he also realized that black men were among the men that he was treating, but the impression people were left with was that it was a gay white man's disease. I mean, this on top of initially it being attributed to the Haitians and then on to to become a, a gay white man's disease. So Reggie was a part of a group that through the task force that had put together a proposal to the Centers for Disease Control in response to a request for proposals for national programming, community-based programming. And so this proposal was the only one representing men who have sex with men that was funded. I came on into the process shortly after it, it got funded, and we did a, a national survey of Black men who have sex with men. We put together an actual task force, a national task force of men from around the country representing these various places where there were these chapters of the of the organization to respond to the growing problem and to provide some sort of prevention information. And what it, it turned out to be was what we called a safer sex play shop as opposed to a workshop called Hot, Horny, and Healthy to get people in the mode of what they could do, how they could take control of the potential for them 
to be at risk for HIV. I want to dig a little deeper about the Hot, Horny, and Healthy workshop. Would you mind walking our listeners through what a session of Hot, Horny, and Healthy, what it was like? Could you just kind of paint a picture for us? Like, who are the people in the room? What were some of the things that came out in the discussions? What did people get really sort of passionate about? Could you just kind of paint a bit of a picture for us? Well, I'll paint as good of a picture <laughs> as I can, um, you know, over over the years. But I do remember very well the, the most important things. The most, to me, the most important things about it were, one, these sessions were kind of built around home marketing things like Tupperware and Mary Kay, where an individual would invite their social network to their home for basically a social occasion that was going to be enhanced or whatever by this presentation related to whatever the product is. And so it's most importantly about uh, uh, people who are already pretty much comfortable with each other, know each other, or are, you know, socially acquainted with one another to begin with. And then it would be, as is the case with any other commercial presentation, it would be about presenting the issue the problem of AIDS and, you know, what can we do to put ourselves at lower risk for it? And basically AIDS 101, what is it? How do you get it? How can you prevent it? And then it was about various direct exercises that you could do to enhance your ability to protect yourself at the point of, of having sex. So basically that was about learning how to properly use a condom. And whether you were the, you know, the top or the bottom, you know, how you could negotiate that with a partner and, you know, even down to someone, usually there was someone who was one of the, you know, workshop leaders who could even show you how to what they call cheek a condom, have a condom in your mouth and be able to put it on someone's penis you know, without them even necessarily noticing that you had, you know, had taken it out of the, the wrapper or whatever. So you're doing these kind of demos and this is, uh, what years was this? This would have been like 88, 89. So 88, 89, you have a room full of, you know, black and bisexual men doing these workshops. What do you remember like how they were people pushing back on having to use condoms? Were they, like, how were people responding to the sexual health information that was being provided? Well, I think, first of all, that people, you know, knew who they were inviting. So I don't think people invited p- folks that they thought were necessarily going to be totally, you know, not with it. But I think there was a fair amount of pushback about, you know, how effective you know, it, it would be to get someone a top, let's say, if you were a bottom, to agree to, to use a condom if if he didn't want and you know then it came down to what you know how you would respond under those circumstances and you know for for me it really it led to a, a greater calculus of basically you know how cute do i think you are versus how you know willing am i to let that impact you know what i will do with you and you know i don't think we've ever really kind of worked that completely through. But yeah, there were, there, it wasn't a, uh, an easy sell, that's for sure. But I think one amazing thing about it was that within that social network, people were, you know, were not going to come too far outside of, of what 
the general consensus was supposed to be. I mean, the idea was that everyone is, was supposed to want to keep from getting AIDS. I mean, that was uh, the number one thing. And, you know, at that point in time, although by 89 or by then, certainly we had isolated HIV and we knew that, you know, that that was what led to AIDS. But even so, the vast majority of people were getting sick with AIDS still and dying. They weren't, you know, getting diagnosed with HIV. And and even if they were, they were usually at a point where their, you know, their immune systems had been so compromised that it wasn't possible to to do that much for them. Or they were being given the drugs like AZT and dosages that were killing them as fast, if not faster than the disease itself. I want to venture to another point, which is just the moment that people lived in. In our current moment, as we grapple with COVID-19, there have been you know, connections attempted to be made between what's happening now and maybe the 80s with you know, how we experienced HIV. But I was just wondering if you could shed some light on what it was like being a Black gay activist in the like late 1980s, early 90s. What was it like for Black gay and bisexual activists? You know, what was that world like for our community? And what did it mean to be an activist in that time? Well, my experience, I can only really speak to it and, and, and my observation of other people, but it was a pivotal moment anyway, because we had so many people like the Marlins and the Essexes, and I want to mention a few women, but people like Renee McCoy and Audre Lorde and you know Barbara Smith and Sharon Farmer. So it was a real burgeoning of Black non-hetero creativity. And the people that started organizations like the National Coalition of Black Lesbians and Gays naturally sort of were the ones who then evolved into the whole sexual health and AIDS and HIV arena. So that was a great thing in a lot of ways because it meant that some of our most creative minds then you know, went to work on this issue and were able to do things that gave some legs to the the very poorly financed and, you know, under-promoted activities that organizations like the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention were undertaking. I mean, it was a real, it was a perfect storm, to tell you the truth in my mind, of everybody virtually against us. The white boys didn't want to give it up. I mean, you know, I, I could talk on and on about you know, the, the hassle they went through to try to keep us from getting the premiere of um, Jenny Livingston's movie. Paris is Burning? Yeah, Paris is Burning. Um, I mean, you know, they really put the, the screws to Jenny. And I had, you know, to remind her, too, that, yeah, I asked you first. And, you know, if you let the white boys have it, then you'll just be contributing to, you know, the very thing that the movie is, is largely about. But, I mean, so you had them. You have black people who didn't want to hear anything about it. I mean, I, it, it was just crazy. And then you had the medical and public health establishment that basically at every opportunity found some way to disrespect and or marginalize us. Uh, we had no real serious representation in Congress until finally, God bless her, uh, Maxine Waters showed up and said, hey, what's what the hell is going on? So, I mean, it was. It was, a, to me, it felt like a perfect storm. And in some ways, I guess one could say that that was 
an amazing incubator and a, a you know a place to be. I mean, I guess it maybe it helped to minimize some of the intra conflict that if we hadn't been in that kind of a situation would have uh, naturally come up or whatever. But it was really a very difficult experience because you were constantly defending your right to be basically among these people, even that supposedly, you know, were on your side. And then, oh, by the way, um, you know, how are we going to keep our people from being further impacted by this? And kind of sadly, the results have borne out that it it was not a a good battle for us. One of the stories you shared with me that really touched me was, uh, you know, you shared your experiences being a student at Howard University. Would you mind sharing with our, our listeners that experience of being at Howard and just some of the things you witnessed, some of the folks that you might have come across in that experience? <laughs> yes. Well, fortunately, I've had some of that on my mind this morning, so I'm perhaps a little bit better prepared to to speak on it. But um, so, you know, it's a good segue, too, because you can imagine it finding oneself in this particular situation as far as doing this sort of work against these these kind of odds it was very emotionally i mean on top of all your friends getting sick and dying or whatever it was very emotionally draining and so i decided that you know i had a pretty strong background coming up in the, in the church and a lot of my interaction in the community around HIV prevention ended up connecting me to a network of people that locally who were doing the work. And one of the very first people I met was a man known at that point as Dr. Elias Farajaje Jones, who was a professor at Howard University School of Divinity. And over the course of getting to know him better in the midst of doing this work as a volunteer. And, you know, it was a lot of the social life was around raising money and awareness around HIV. And so ultimately, I decided that I personally needed what I called to seismically retrofit my own sense of spiritual and religious connection. And so I applied to and enrolled at Howard University School of Divinity in the fall of 1989 in order to study with Ibrahim, as he's now known. And it was a a life-altering experience that I'm still, you know, very much connected to and, and that I feel very strongly about how it made such a big difference in my life. I just can't begin to imagine, you know, how anything could have been any more important to the way that I ended up seeing my life in this context. And the only thing that, that in any way I feel unfortunate about is that we never did do the things we had wanted to do in terms of memorializing the experiences of the AIDS and HIV pandemic. What would that look like to memorialize our experiences? You know, that's that's <laughs> that's where I need him. I guess I'm going to have to channel him a little bit more because I think he you know, in our last conversation, he said he was coming to believe that he, you know, had some idea that we could finally you know, unpack some of these things. And this is and, Ibrahim. Yes, this is Ibrahim. And I was like, yeah, well, let's do it. Let's, you know, let's let's get on it. I know I need to unburden myself of a lot of this stuff. And I thought he was one of the few people with whom I actually felt safe enough to really go there. I mean, it, it was. It was not a... um it was a sustained, you know, made me think of something Phyllis Hyman said, you know, the, 
the show business is a 24-hour-a-day ass-kicking. And that's pretty much the way this felt. It was, it was not, you know, you had these so many moments of great connection and love and warmth and so many moments of great despair and grief and just people not, you know, to me, what's going on now is sort of, I guess it's, it's almost easy in some ways because at least you're, you know, you're not being vilified for just being. I know that there's a lot of stigma being associated with the coronavirus, but it is not you know, as directly labeled that people who happen to be non-heterosexual or to be perceived in that regard. Absolutely. Final question is, what could our activists and artists today in our community, what are some of the things they can learn from that earlier generation of activism, particularly in the 1980s? What are some of the lessons that we can learn from that moment today in, in using our current efforts? I think the main thing for me is the collective spirit that a lot of the creativity of the 80s and beyond brought to the fore, the working together and and maybe not looking as much at the commercial value of creative work, but more at the importance of expressing what the community is. I think the work that was begun that perhaps got seriously stifled and and maybe truncated by AIDS and HIV is the development of a real non-hetero, you know, however you want to describe it. I, I know I like non-hetero because it describes what, you know, for me, what the, the thing that I'm resisting is supposed to be. But the point is, describe this beyond sex. I mean, there should be more to being a person who has some same gender connection than just the the physical act of sex and ejaculation. There is, you know, and, and that was a lot of what was being coming to the fore at that point. And even, you know, heaven forfend, you know, being able to connect across genders and gender expressions and have relationships with lesbians who, you know, who, whom, um, you know, we've had such a hard time making uh, connections with so so often. And so those are the things to me that I would love to see. We, you know, we didn't have the, you know, we were printing these little books and, you know, chat books or whatever and, you know, selling them for a few dollars. I still remember Elin Harris, God rest him, you know, selling his book out of the trunk of his car when he first started out and just coming around to, you know, once again, the people's houses where we, you know, called ourselves the Washington Black Literary Society or whatever. But the, you know, the bottom line is those kinds of efforts that were just socially driven and so forth, I think they had a lot of benefit. And I think that's something that now, you know, I'm not certainly have no issue whatsoever with people putting their creativity out there however they think it can best benefit them and anyone else. And at the same time, I just think it would be great if we had some ways to help incubate and provide people with the level of collective encouragement and support that really will move things forward creatively and and also socially in our community. Thank you so much, Al. I know I learned a lot and I'm just truly grateful for, one, your amazing leadership in our movement and the amazing part you played in our movement history. And it's truly an honor to just get to share space with you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Charles. The, the pleasure is mine. And I'm very happy to be a part of the Counter Narrative Project. And I hope that you know we can continue to work together in whatever ways will benefit all. Absolutely. This has been Narratology. Please be sure to follow CNP on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook at CNP Tribe.